I hope you're in Matthew chapter 9 as we continue our series on Sunday morning entitled, Follow Me. It is a series that we began several weeks ago to help us to rediscover our identity in Jesus Christ, to help us to understand what it means to be a Christian and what God is expecting of us as followers of Jesus Christ. And the reason we began this is because many Christians today are very concerned and and they're very uh, confused over what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it look like? How, how, How should I conduct my life as a believer in Jesus Christ? And I've discovered that in listening to their concerns and to listening to their confusion, that often it is a direct result of their initial invitation to Christ Uh, that they received at the beginning. That the moment that they responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there were expectations created at that moment that moved them into confusion as they continued on with the Lord. Let me explain. Instead of giving people a proper understanding of what Jesus is requiring or asking us to do to come and to follow him, we often in our culture, in our society, have tried to create and market Jesus in some way to make him more attractive to people so people would respond positively to Jesus. And as a result, in their attempts to make Jesus more attractive... And let me give you an example of what I mean by that. Uh, You know, adding a caveat to the invitation of saying, Jesus, if you come to Jesus Christ, he's going to help you fulfill all of your personal desires. Now, is that true? Think about it from a biblical standpoint. Is that true? But unfortunately, the gospel has been presented that way, and many, many, many thousands of people have responded to such a gospel invitation. So therefore, when it doesn't work the way they thought it was going to work, they get discouraged, and they go into an identity crisis, and they ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? I don't get it. I'm not realizing all of my personal desires in this relationship with God. I'm not fulfilling all of my uh, sought-out objectives as a Christian. Why are these things not occurring? Well, it's because Jesus never said they would. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to take a step back. And we wanted to look at every portion of Scripture through the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels in particular, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And we wanted to go back to the initial invitation that is found in the two words, follow me, and discover what Jesus laid down as criteria for those who would desire to follow after him. And what we are discovering so far is that the expectation that Jesus set from the beginning is an expectation that would prepare the people for the difficulties that they would experience as they continued in their Christian life. You know, we all love the promises of the Bible, and I bet you that if I were to go over to your home and I went to your library, that you would have there on your library a book of the promises of God towards you. And I am so thankful for the blessed promises of God towards us. The Bible is replete with them. And they are wonderful to count on and to stand firmly upon. 
But there are some promises that are often omitted. The promise that Jesus said that if the world hated me, they're going to hate you also. If the world persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. I've never come to anyone's home and found that on a magnet on their refrigerator. You shall be hated by the world. Great. I've never seen that on a t-shirt or a napkin holder or on a salt and pepper shaker. Isn't it terrible what we put verses on today? We sometimes want to avoid those more difficult promises. And when those things occur, as Jesus said they would, we don't know how to respond. We don't know how to act. We don't know how to um, negotiate those times in our Christian life when we are persecuted for our faith in Jesus Christ, when we are despised for our faith in Jesus Christ. Today, we are seeing a growing hostility towards those who claim Christianity, not only here but around the world. How do we negotiate that? How do we walk through that? So our whole series is based on those two words, follow me, and then reading the caveats and the qualifications that Jesus gives us after that invitation to help, once again, rediscover a healthy, healthy expectation and understand what a Christian truly is. Today's message is entitled, Follow Me to a New Purpose. And we are going to be looking in Matthew chapter 9 as we continue our look at these different statements that are posed to different people throughout the Synoptic Gospels. We come to chapter 9 and we come to a very personal section of Scripture for the writer. For the Gospel of Matthew, we are going to now learn how Jesus personally invited him to follow him. And for Matthew, it was a following Jesus to a brand new purpose in life. For Matthew was known as a tax collector, for he was a tax collector. And his whole identity was surrounded by that fact. People didn't see a man, they saw a tax collector. It was a stigmatism that he walked within each and every single day of his life. One that I want to let you know that he chose for himself. But because of that choice, he was despised by culture, by society. Friends and family abandoned him because of his becoming a tax collector. He was hated, and he was despised and rejected by those who were the religious leaders at that time. However, when Jesus passed by, he said, Matthew, follow me. It's an imperative. It's a command. And Jesus looked intently at Matthew as their eyes met, as he walked by, and Matthew left everything and followed after Jesus Christ. And for Matthew, it was a complete, a complete overhaul of his personal identity. We talked about the Christian going through an identity crisis today, forgetting and not realizing and not knowing who they are in Jesus Christ. 
But do you know how many people in society today don't know who they are? If you had to tell someone who you are, how would you describe yourself? In a normal introduction of two people who do not know each other, the very first thing that is offered is their names. Hi, I'm so-and-so. And then they would reply in kind, Hi, I am so-and-so. At one time, you could derive a lot from a person's name, but not anymore. And now they're making new names for children, names that never existed before. We've adopted naming our children the same way that they are creating new dogs. We have a Labradoodle. And so now we are creating new names by taking names and separating them and making new names that have no etymology, so we don't know where they came from. And we have no idea what that name means. So that doesn't mean anything anymore, does it? And it's not wrong to do so. I'm just saying that there is no heritage in a name that has just recently been created. So the next thing that often is offered in an introduction is, what do you do, right? That somehow, some way, your career decision is going to sum you up as a person. And it may work in some cases. You probably could learn a lot from me knowing that I'm a pastor. I could learn a lot from you knowing that you maybe are a doctor or a nurse or a lawyer who needs to repent uh, or a politician. Um, if there's a lawyer here today, excuse me, pardon me. You can write me letters and sue me later. Um, that might tell you a little bit about your identity, but it doesn't sum you up, does it? Do you know it's has gone as far as sexual orientation today because people are so desperate to find identity that they find it in their sexual orientation. They don't know who they are. The farther we push God away, the farther we say we don't want anything to do with him, the farther we remove ourselves from knowing who we are. We have no identity. The moment we remove the creator from the creation is the moment that we lose our identity. Here Matthew is known to be a tax collector. That was his whole identity. Now, this carries weight because all of society knew what a tax collector was. What they represented. How they conducted their lives. And they were hated for it. And we're going to show you and demonstrate why in just a moment. There may be occupations today that you, once you hear of, you become growing very skeptical of their integrity. Maybe it's politician. Maybe you're a little leery. Maybe you have come to the conclusion that anybody can say anything and then get elected, right? I think we're all tired. We're all burnt out of that. There are stigmatisms. You know, if you had a family member of the IRS, how quickly would you be in, willing to invite them over for Christmas dinner? There are stigmatisms to certain positions, and Matthew carried one that just consumed his entire identity. And because of it, everything in his life changed. But you know what? He was wealthy. He had material possessions. He was able to live at a standard of life that most in this area of Capernaum and Galilee could not sustain. But Matthew could. Out of all of the disciples, historians tell us that Matthew is probably the most educated out of all of them. 
And yet, he was completely isolated and separated from his entire society, his entire culture, including his God, based on the interaction that he had with the religious leaders at that time. Matthew, the tax collector, despised and hated by most. His only friends at this time were others who were tax collectors like him, or those who were considered sinners, those who had no regard for the law of God whatsoever. And yet, in a moment, one walks past him and says, follow me. And Matthew's life is completely changed, and his identity completely recreated. Let's begin here in verse 9 of chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel. And as Jesus passed from there... He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Jesus passing by, leaving the uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee, he had just crossed the sea, coming to the docks. And as you approached the docks there in Galilee and the ships were then docked, you would then disembark the ship and you would then begin to make your way into the city of Capernaum. And there was one road that was heavily traveled. And next to that road was a booth. And it literally was a toll booth. We know all about toll booths here in Chicago, don't we? Don't you remember that they were supposed to pay for our education? Remember that? And that they were only going to be... Do you know that the tolls here in Illinois were supposed to be taken down in 1967? We haven't gotten to it yet, have we? (laughs) But it was a toll booth. So you're making your way through this street, and there's a toll booth that you have to go through. And in that booth, that tax booth, was Matthew. And he was collecting revenue based upon everything that you were bringing ashore with you, either from your catch there in the Sea of Galilee or from the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he was hated and despised by all. Why? First of all, to become a tax collector for the Roman Empire, and that's in whom he served, He had to sell his identity as a Jewish individual and pledge his allegiance onto Rome. He had to pay for the right to become a tax collector. Rome would then set a standard, meaning an amount that had to be collected each and every uh, year. But the tax collector was able to charge whatever he wanted and whatever was left over, he got himself. So he was an extortioner of his very own people. And those who had no regard for the Jewish people or for the Jewish faith pursued these things. He saw it as a golden opportunity. Hey, I can't do anything about the Roman occupation here in my homeland, but I can benefit from it. I can become wealthy off of it. And that's what he did. And he was hated by the people. Because, again, he could legally rob them continuously. He was known to be a thief and a traitor to his own people. Despised. But sitting there in his booth, collecting his taxes, 
And some historians have now estimated that from this region alone, Herod, who received most of that uh, tax on the basis of Rome, uh, Roman authority, would receive about $5 million a year at that time. So you can imagine how much he was gouging the people to sustain himself, his lifestyle, etc., they often had some of the most uh, you know, outlandish homes, but they were hated by everybody. But he was willing to do that because he wanted to pursue these things. He wanted that wealth. He wanted that ability, that standard of life, and he was willing to just throw everything away to get it. And then one day, the one in whom is hated so much is called by Jesus. And there is no doubt that he had heard of who Jesus was. And the rumblings and the echoes that have taken place and the reverberations through the cities of one who has come that is confounding the religious leaders. One who is preaching and teaching and having authority like no other. One who is loving unconditionally. One who is standing up and calling out the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. So I can imagine that that moment that Jesus walked by, Matthew's eyes were fixed upon him, knowing who Jesus was, but not anticipating that Jesus was gazing upon him. The word saw there in our text is that it's more than just a glance. It's that Jesus had his eyes fixed on Matthew as he was walking by. And as he got closer and as he got uh, nearer to Matthew, at one moment he just looks and says, You, follow me. An imperative command. You, follow me. And Matthew responds immediately. Now you may say that Jesus didn't understand the culture and what it meant to be a tax collector and how much they were despised, but you would be wrong. For Jesus in chapter 5, verse 46, told his people as he was teaching, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. He was fully aware of the cultural stigmatism that these individuals carried. In chapter 11, verse 19, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Or in Matthew 18, 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and or a tax collector. He knew the stigmatism that Matthew carried, and regardless of that fact, he said, follow me. All of us know someone that we can never ever picture or imagine being a Christian. I know that growing up, I was that person for many. They never anticipated that I would ever become a Christian. And when I did... There were many who were confounded by that reality. Maybe you know someone who you feel, no, this just can't possibly ever happen. They're too far gone. They just don't really care. Uh, they're into it too deeply. Whatever it may be, don't ever write them off. Because here Matthew would have been the last person anyone would have ever expected Jesus to call upon, and that's the one that Jesus targeted. 
I can imagine that those disciples already following Jesus were probably having a little bit of difficulty with his decision. Uh, Jesus, <laughs> maybe you just don't know this, <laughs> but uh, uh, we don't like him. And nobody else does either. Don't you want popular people who have a lot of friends and a lot of uh, well-connected uh, individuals and therefore you can expand your kingdom that way? Now again, I'm just, it's conjecture and speculation, but tradition has it that one of the individuals that hated Matthew the most was Peter. Tradition has it that Peter despised Matthew up until this point. But Jesus calls upon him fully knowing who he is. Hated by most of the people around him. The only friends that Matthew had were those who were fellow tax collectors, Gentiles or sinners. Those who didn't uh, give any regard to the law of God. Uh, And then to uh, understand that Matthew's whole identity was found in him being a tax collector. And he was reminded of it constantly. Reminded of it constantly. Later in his own gospel, in chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, you discover as Matthew is listing the disciples' names, he calls himself Matthew the tax collector. It was an identity that was hard to get by. It's interesting to me that that identity, that stigmatism carried with him to such a degree, and now he is following after Jesus, and the response was immediate. Was immediate. One commentator wrote, a tax collector or a customs house officer, he is and his fellow officials were hated intensely by the Jews because of their crookedness, because of their oppressive taxes that they exacted. And most of all, because they served the interests of the Roman Empire, Israel's overlord at that time. So let's understand what's taking place here. Jesus is stirring it up. Calls someone that no one had ever anticipated that he would ever call, and that person responds immediately. And then we discover here in our text, in verse 10, that the very thing that Matthew does first is celebrate what is about to take place in his life. He celebrates the fact that he is now following after Jesus Christ, and he does so by hosting a huge dinner party for his friends and co-workers, associates. He is celebrating the fact that he is no longer who he once was. And that he is going to a new identity, a new purpose in life. Understand that when one carries a purpose, that means that's, that's the reason for existing. That's the reason that they were made. That's the reason for their entire being, their purpose. And all of that was enveloped in him being a tax collector. And now he is celebrating the fact that he is no longer that way. Look at verse 10 with me. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, and many believe that this was Matthew's house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And of course, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Matthew wasn't the same person 
The only people that he could invite to this table, this celebration, were further tax collectors and those who had no regard for the law whatsoever. This is the only people that he had on his Facebook friend list. And it was these people that he wanted to give the opportunity for them to hear Jesus for themselves. He has just started following the Lord, and already he is giving Jesus a platform to talk to anyone who will listen of his base of friends. But they were all people despised by the culture. They were considered unclean by the religious leaders. And Jesus is reclining, relaxing, eating with them, talking with them, celebrating the fact that Matthew was now following him. And Matthew wanted to make it clear to his friends, I am no longer the person I once was. I'm not going to do what I did before. Luke tells us a fact that Matthew was probably too modest to include. Luke tells us that Matthew left everything behind. He left his materialism, he left his wealth, he left his position, he left everything behind to follow after Jesus Christ. And he was making a public declaration of it. He wanted all of his friends to know, all of his acquaintances, all of his associates, I'm no longer the same person. I'm done with this life. I'm moving on. I'm following after Jesus. Now you have to understand how big of a statement this was. By him severing his his ties with his existence, his life, no one was going to hire him after this fact. He was always going to be known as the tax collector, so Jewish people wouldn't go anywhere near him. You know, the fishermen that were following Jesus, when he died, remember when Jesus died, the fishermen went back, what? Fishing. We don't read of Matthew going back to tax collecting. He couldn't do so. Because not only would he be despised by the Jewish people, but he would be despised by the Roman Empire for leaving this allegiance. Some believe that Matthew could have even been killed by the Roman Empire for doing what he did, and it was a miracle that he was not. He left everything. He abandoned everything for the pursuit of Jesus Christ, and he no longer was going to allow his identity, his purpose, to be derived from him being a tax collector any longer. Because it appears to Matthew that he knew something about himself Matthew knew something about himself that even the religious leaders, those who were supposed to be close to God, didn't realize about themselves. And it is interesting that in the Synoptic Gospels, Mark and Luke and Matthew, Mark being written first and then Matthew, then Luke, we discover that neither Mark nor Luke enter or give us a phrase that Matthew does. It is Jesus quoting Hosea 6.6. Because Matthew knew something about himself that even the religious leaders did not know of themselves. That Matthew was sick and needed a Savior. That Matthew was sick and needed a Savior. As we read, when the Pharisees began to challenge the disciples of Jesus, and Jesus overhearing 
what the Pharisees had said about his interaction and keeping company with those who were considered unclean, those who were considered tax collectors and sinners. But it says here in verse 12, but when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It is only Matthew that includes that quote. Can you imagine Matthew sitting there, listening to Jesus, being invited by Jesus to follow him? And this is before Matthew now is getting the understanding of who Jesus is. It's developing, it's growing. We know by Matthew's gospel alone that Matthew had a well-working of the Old Testament. And every single time Matthew could make an Old Testament connection with Jesus Christ and the mission that he served out, he did so. And as you read Matthew's gospel, you will read continuously Matthew pointing back to the Old Testament. Reminding us that these things were prophesied of and that Jesus then fulfilled them as he was writing to his Jewish brethren. Did Matthew know these things? And then as he saw Jesus emerging onto the scene, did he start to move thinking, could it possibly be that this be our Messiah? But Matthew records for us this phrase, hearing it from Jesus' lips, knowing that he himself, Matthew, was sick and in need of a Savior and discovers for the first time, for the very first time, that God was a God of mercy. He knew he was hated by the people, despised, rejected by the religious leaders. And then all of a sudden he discovers that God himself comes and says, I desire mercy. Can you imagine the impact that that had on Matthew's life? One who thought that he he could no way possibly even come close to God, let alone becoming a disciple of Jesus himself. Matthew records that for us. He reminds us of that fact. He reminds us that Jesus told the religious Pharisees, you better rediscover why you are here. You isolate these people, you reject these people, you despise these people, but I desire mercy. Folks, I'm about to say something that some of you might be offended by. And if you are, I am sorry, but we need to all hear this. I'm going to tell you this morning that I believe that Christians, that includes us here today, Christians are becoming some of the most critical, judgmental people in our society. We're starting to resemble the Pharisees more than Jesus. We're determining who is worthy to receive the gospel and who is not. We're determining that this person uh, deserves to hear it and this person deserves not to. We're determining when someone's too far gone. Maybe we need to be reminded of the fact that God desires mercy, that He's a God of mercy. We understand that those who are apart from Christ are under a weight of judgment, but let us not forget that God is a God of mercy. And who are we to determine that anyone else isn't good enough to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who are we? Who do we think we are to come to that place? 
Let us not become pharisaical in our understanding, but let's become more like Jesus Christ because one, like Matthew, remembered this. He recorded this. He said, God desires mercy and not sacrifice. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. He's saying this to the Pharisees who thought they were righteous. But what they didn't know about themselves condemned themselves. They thought that they were right with God when in actuality they were far from God. They thought that they represented God perfectly when, they, when he didn't represent them at all. When he, uh, they didn't represent, that is, God at all properly. Jesus says, you lips draw near to me, but your hearts are far from me. The only ones that Jesus raised his voice to in, in any kind of firm, utter rebuke, other than the devil, was the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. Our world is dying around us. All of us here have friends and family who do not know Jesus Christ. And I tell you that if we have adopted, and if our hearts have become critical, then we have become no good to the furtherance of the kingdom of God. We need to learn once again what Jesus taught us here and what was so impacting to Matthew. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. As one wrote, he said, the Pharisees always brought proper sacrifices, but they were totally lacking in compassion towards sinners. When mercy is lacking, then religious formalities are meaningless. When mercy is lacking, then religious formalities are meaningless. We must understand that there's a contrast that Matthew is writing and creating here. That Matthew, as a tax collector, in his life of being despised, his life of being hated, knew that he was in sick and needed a savior. The religious leaders, they thought they were fine. They thought that they were right before God, when in actuality they were not. I'm very concerned about the manner in which we are conducting ourselves as Christians. I get very concerned when I read some of the posts on Facebook that Christians are leveraging and they are getting behind there thinking that they are doing the kingdom of God a favor when in actuality they are just displaying a pharisaical attitude towards those who are lost. Many of us, I think, have forgotten the fact that we were all saved by grace. I ask God to remind me constantly that it was his grace that saved me. It was his love, his mercy. It was Jesus pursuing after me and not me pursuing after Jesus. Let us understand and never forget that. Maybe Matthew continued to write and to identify himself as a tax collector because he never wanted to forget where he came from. But it was the grace of God that changed him. It was the grace of God that moved him and created in him a completely new identity all over again. Here's the other thing that I'm very concerned about that I think the religious Pharisees pose for us today. Have we forgotten what sin actually is? The religious leaders were so religious. They scrutinized the scriptures. They wanted to observe every dot and tittle that was created there in the law, and in actuality, they had actually forgotten what sin actually was. That's another thing I'm gravely concerned about. 
I'm gravely concerned that we as Christians have forgotten what sin is and how serious sin is. The moment I begin to diminish the impact of sin, I have to remind myself of what Jesus went through to alleviate that burden of sin from me. I need to remember what he went through to alleviate that burden of sin from my life. I'm not preaching legalism. I have been introduced at conferences as the epitome of God's grace. And that's truly how I stand. But let us not forget what sin is. Because the moment we do, the moment we begin to move into that pharisaical position, and I've noticed that a lot of Christians are very good at seeing the sin in other people's lives, but not seeing the sin in their own lives especially when that sin in another person's life is something that that Christian themselves struggles with. It's interesting how critical they become of that person when in actuality it's they themselves that are struggling with that exact same sin. Jesus said, you need to go and learn. You need to go and learn and remind yourself of what God desires, of what sin is, that we are all sick in need of a Savior, that that sin is destroying lives, and it is you and I who carry the incredible gospel of Jesus Christ into a fallen world, and we cannot pick and choose and whom we feel is worthy to hear it or not. Because then we will be no better if we choose to do that than these religious Pharisees themselves. One wrote, as someone has said, Matthew, he lost a comfortable job, but he found a destiny. He lost a good income, but he found honor. He lost a comfortable security, but found an adventure the like of which he had never dreamed. Not the least among his rewards were that he became one of the twelve and was honored to write the gospel in which bears his name. One early church father said, Matthew left everything behind except one thing. One thing Matthew carried with him that served him in his ministry for Jesus Christ. One thing, and that was his pen. The same pen that recorded the debt and recorded the injustice and the robbery in which Matthew was conducting his life was the same pen that Matthew now penned by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the gospel in which we are reading today. Incredible. No longer do we see him as simply a tax collector, but an apostle of Jesus Christ. God using this man that nobody else wanted or recognized, and Jesus saw him. Not because of what Matthew brought to the table, that was irrelevant, but because God knew that he chose Matthew. And Matthew then came and recorded for you and I all that we are reading this morning and what has been read by millions and millions of people over the last 2,000 years. Do you ever think that Matthew sitting in that tax booth at that moment, as Jesus walked by with Jesus' eyes fixed upon him and hearing those two words, follow me, would ever realize that to this day the writings that were written by a man 2,000 years ago have been read by so many. 
Think of how many individuals have possibly come to saving faith in Jesus Christ because of what Matthew recorded. It's incredible to think of. When Jesus departed those two words in that uh, manner in which he did in the imperative, meaning it's a command, come and follow me, here is what Jesus was saying in the Greek. He says, come and follow me and walk the same road that I am walking. That's what Jesus was saying here. You're not alone anymore, Matthew. I am with you. Walk the road that I am walking. And Matthew received that invitation. And it wasn't just something that was meant to be done at the moment. It was something that was meant to be done day by day. Putting it all together, Jesus is saying, I'm asking you, I'm even commanding you to follow me each and every day. Let us walk through life together. That's what Jesus is saying. Matthew is no longer the tax collector that he once was. As you are no longer the person that you once were prior to coming to Jesus Christ. And the next time someone asks you who you are, by all means start with your name. But then before getting to your occupation, you may want to consider... Hi, I'm Eric, and I'm a Christian. Find your identity in who you truly are in Christ. Let people understand who you are by the manner in which you introduce yourself to people. Let people know that you are a Christian and live accordingly. That your words and your life and each of your actions glorifies God that they may see the gospel within you. When we choose to follow after Christ and to heed his invitation, we are leaving our identity, we are leaving our purposes behind, and we are adopting his. And we are now becoming the individuals that God wants us to be. And us as individuals following after Christ, our mandate and our purpose is to glorify him in all that we do say And think. The call of a Christian found in the two words, follow me. As we've discovered with Matthew, it was follow me to a new purpose that I have for you.